This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Here's my question. The city wants more. They want more money from you. They'd love to get more money from you, but you have to behave badly to give it to them. What do I mean by that? More speed cameras, more red light cameras, more speed bumps, and more roundabouts. Is this going to actually happen here? Well, uh, that seems to be the plan. Um, There's going to be a meeting later on today about Toronto's Vision Zero. This was the grand plan for former Mayor John Tory in 2016 that basically took cops away from, and and I think this is okay, put them into more important things um, like investigating major crimes than just sitting and waiting at an intersection for you to go through a red light. We have red light cameras for that now. Speeding through a school zone or a safety zone. The city wants to make it easier to expand the use of calming traffic down. But there's three things they're doing here. Me thinking this, it's all about the money. It always ends up being about the money. They want more money. They want more community safety zones. And I would air quote community safety zones where speed cameras, red light cameras, and a lot more things can be designed. I want to know how you feel about that. 416-870-6400. I've got some numbers that are a little jarring, but I've got some numbers that are really encouraging as well. And I'll lay that out for you. 416-870-6400. We're going to have more of these things. I don't know a municipality or a mayor in, you know, one of the, one of the GTA suburbs that's going to stand up and say, stop. (laughs) I want less red light cameras. I want less speed cameras. I think there's a debate because it's revenue. It's revenue for them. Of course it is. I do think there's an argument for roundabouts not working on certain streets. And I think residents say those roundabouts are kind of ugly. But you know and I know that the other things are coming. They're coming. I am surrounded now by uh, what I call community safety zones. Now, admittedly, there's a school and a soccer field right behind our house. So I have to get a little smarter. With my, I, I I documented this on uh, on X, if you will, a few months ago. How I got in the mail in a forty k zone a ticket for going fifty two. Now you'll say to me, you, "Stop driving like a maniac," but I would make the case that fifty two and a forty is different when it's at four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon and kids are getting picked up from school than it is Sunday morning at eleven a.m. when nobody's at the school. Or Friday night at 2 a.m. And I'm watching. I'm going, I think that's a reasonable speed where you'd like to get home and find your bed. But this is about cash for municipalities. And I can hardly blame them with everything they've been saddled with. 416-870-6400. Lines are lit right up. Everybody loves. I, you talk about driving, traffic, any of this stuff. And you can do calls all day. All day. Let's get to Ken in Barry. Thanks for the phone call. I appreciate it. You go right ahead. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Uh, I'll, st- I'll start off by saying I'm an Uber driver full-time, so I- I'm on the roads 50 to 60, sometimes 70 hours a week. Yeah. Uh, I don't blame the city for, whether it's a cash grab or not, I don't blame them for putting in uh, speed zone cameras, red light cameras, whatever whatever they have to do. Uh, the amount of stuff I see every day, you know, people in, I'm doing like 45 and a 40 because it's a school zone, people blowing by me doing 70, 80 kilometers an hour. Uh, people just don't, most people just don't care anymore. But they I worry, can I worry we're not getting those big ticket items? I worry 
that we'll, we'll get the odd, we'll see the odd arrest for like stunt driving, and then it almost becomes something we talk about in our show. Some kid took his dad's Ferrari out, and he was going one fifty six on on the DVP like that. But I'm worried that we're we're using the speed cameras and getting kind of you know tiny little fines here and there, sixty bucks, eighty bucks, but they add up, and we're not actually stopping people going one hundred forty on the four hundred one anymore. I could be wrong. No. No, you're right. And, and, and I think there is some kind, there's like a, a zone in that camera. Like if you're going 45 and a 40, it's not going to ticket you. There's, there's probably like, if it's an eight or nine over ban, you get hit. I have friends who are, who are OPP offices and they tell me if you're on the, on the 400, the 401 DVP or whatever, and you're doing 15 over, you will never get pulled over. Oh, can we make it 25 for you? They're not looking for you. <laughs> They're not looking. Yeah. Doing 120, 120 big ticket items. Just like you said. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you're looking for. It's a weird thing. I don't know if anybody's really experienced this because I don't think these highways are in the GTA, but when you go London to Sarnia on the 402, they up the speed limit to 110. And I'm telling you, I don't notice anything being different. I feel like we could get to 110, but why won't we? We want revenue. Why will why will they charge me fifty two and a forty on a Sunday at noon when there's nobody around? There are I'm telling you I'm pleading with you to believe me. There are no kids anywhere. I get driving through a school zone. That's a massive thing. But time and place matter. I think also. There, that's uh, my fault for losing him. Uh, Steve, thanks very much for the phone call. You're on six forty Toronto. You go right ahead. Yeah, I wanted to mention about the speed bumps that they're mentioning about putting. That yeah. They're actually detrimental to pregnant women. Uh, speed bumps are very hard on the baby, and some speed bumps are worse than others, like the ones in my building. But that, that's another story. So but you know, you notice them. There's a distinct um, uncomfortability in the midsection. I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can just imagine how it is for pregnant women. Oh my gosh, it's like. That's not good. And there's a study out of the UK that proves it. It's not very good for them. And a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, I know that boat rides are are a big thing. They get told all the time. Pregnant women get told you don't want chop you don't want to be on choppy waters. It's not just for how you feel. Really quick story. My wife and I were in Venice, Italy. I know, right? Um, but we were in Venice, Italy when we were pregnant with our first child, and she was only at about five months. And they have water taxis everywhere. She didn't like that. Didn't like, and I don't like it when she doesn't like something. That <laughs> that's a difficult night out when you're going for dinner. You get in a water taxi, and and like her brain is spinning around when you get to where you're going to get to, and you're like, oh, so what wine should we get? Wine's out for the night, as are as are many things, including like a nice walk afterwards. That's what I was referring to. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. He'll be on the Artemis II flight circling the moon, the first non-American ever to fly to the moon. He is Jeremy Hansen. It's great to have you on Toronto Today. Thanks for making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Did you? Were you always interested in space growing up? I mean, you've been asked that 38 times, but I haven't heard uh, your answer. <laughs> I got hooked early on. Yeah. I have a specific recollection of, I was fascinated by airplanes. I was looking at Encyclopedia A, and uh, I came across Armstrong by accident, <laughs> and I can still see the picture on, on, of, the, of them standing on the moon. I don't know if it was him or Buzz, but I can still see that picture in my head, and after that, changed my tree, treehouse into a spaceship and uh, started exploring space. Yeah, we were, clo- we were close to the same age, um, and we're both kind of London area kids, but we missed the moon landing, right? So 
the, all you had to do was listen to your parents talk about it when they were in their 20s or whatnot and, and, and or talk to people a decade older and you're like, we really did miss out on the pure and utter, uh, just just beyond uh, uh, reality of watching men walk on the moon. Yeah, this is true. And um, th- I noticed that, um, you know, the the partnership, Kane Space Agency, NASA, they were they were using this term called the Artemis generation. And I, it didn't really strike me at first. But now that I've been traveling around and talking to people and seeing the reactions, I really get it. You know, there was the mm-hmm. Apollo generation who saw that themselves and it inspired them. And now we're going to have this Artemis generation. And uh, it's different this time that we go back to the moon. It's, uh, it's a different collaboration. It's international partners and it's commercial partners. But it's also about, you know, going there to stay and getting a foothold to go on to Mars and creating technologies that we can use here on the planet. And I think this Artemis generation, we, you know, we, we think they're going to use this, lever- leverage this inspiration to do some amazing things. So I'm actually re- really, really very excited about what it could do for, for our young to kind of get them focused on the right yes. things, which is creating solutions. Jeremy Hansen's uh, joining us right now in Toronto today. He'll join NASA's Artemis 2 mission, uh, Artemis 2 mission, which is about 13 months from now. Uh, but he's in Toronto this week. Tell us first what you're doing here. You're at the uh, uh, ROM at the Royal Ontario Museum with ROM After Dark. Uh, who are you talking to and what's it about? Well, I'm doing a number of events this week. Uh, today I'll be at uh, the Hot Docs uh, uh, Cinema uh, talking to some students there. They're going to see... Um, the um, Space Explorers Moonrise uh, documentary, and then I'll have some time to chat with them after. And that documentary is about how we're leveraging the International Space Station. Uh, David Saint-Jacques is featured in that when he was on the station. Two of my crewmates who I'm going to the moon with are also featured in there, Victor Glover and Christina Cook. And then, uh, yeah, I'll be at the ROM just meeting with people there um, for their, I guess, a, a bit of a Halloween theme that evening. I'll be at the Ontario Science Centre and I'm visiting, oh, that's on Saturday in the mm-hmm. Science Center. I'm visiting some companies, uh, Canadensis and Kepler Communications, who are um, building rovers and leveraging space uh, to uh, create solutions for us here on the planet. So a few neat things uh, this week. Uh, we have so many uh, smart, astute listeners who would have spotted what you said right there. So many, well, There's one guy, but whatever. We have so many smart listeners, Jeremy, and, and you just kind of casually threw these guys, I'm, like, these, these guys I'm going to the moon with. This is now part of your <laughs> your conversation. Like we talk about, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to go to uh, you know, go to the movies on Friday night, but you use in your sentences I'm going to the moon. Can you recap for us what that first moment was like when you found out? It's not like you're sitting in a big audience and you're a best actor nominee at the Oscars. How did you find out? Uh, for me, it was a phone call from the president of the Kane Space Agency. Um, you know, you sort of have an idea of, of what's coming up, and but it's not real until it's real. And for me, that was a phone call sitting at home and talking to the president, Lisa Campbell, the Kane Space Agency, and her just letting me know, look, we've made the final decision. We'd like you to represent Canada on this mission. And that felt uh, felt a little bit overwhelming, actually, when it hit me for real. And uh, But super exciting and, uh, of course, very humbling when you think about it. Um, you've got three kids. I can't imagine um, the. It's not even a humble brag. It's an actual brag that they can have at school right now. What's life been like for them since this announcement? Well, they've had some pretty cool opportunities. Uh, Join me in some of the you know the activities that I've done, sharing this mission with others. Um, so it's been neat from that perspective for them. And then also just some of the conversations we have have been really unique for me. 
as I listen to some of the, you know, the neatest thing is when other people ask your kids something and you hear what they tell them. And um, what I hear them reflecting back is they have a grasp of why we're actually doing this. Like this, this isn't a joy ride to the moon. We are, we are setting big goals to bring lots of genius together from around the, the world to create really solutions for really tough problems. And they're reflecting that back and they're seeing why this is beneficial. And that, that's pretty meaningful for me. I've been working on this a large part of my career. And for them to see that the real reason to push humanity and do space exploration is the thousands of people that are united by a common goal. I, I, the fact that they get that, that's pretty cool. I got 45 seconds, Jeremy, but I want you to expand. What's one of those things that this trip could help us with in the future on this planet? I'm sure you have friends saying, Jeremy, love you like a brother, but do we need to do these things? Do we need to spend money and infrastructure on going into space? We're Canada. What do you say to them? Yeah, the the thing I see as we go back to places like the moon and Mars is that the problems we have to stay there are the same as the ones we're facing here as we eclipse 8 billion people on the planet, and that is basic needs. Things like food security, water, and healthcare, distance, healthcare um, at a distance, for example, remote healthcare. And these are things that we're working on, especially at the Canadian Space Agency, to go back to the moon that we're actually going to test here on the planet first. Amazing. Hey, listen, great to have you in the city uh, this week. And uh, and you've been an ambassador uh, that's absolutely doing all the right things to get younger people. I mentioned it earlier. They used to wheel televisions in right into our classrooms. <laughs> I hope they're doing this. I hope the timing works for every elementary school and high school to get together and watch you do what you're going to do 13 months from now. I hope so anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so as well. Thank you for having me today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. This lawsuit at uh, um, involving York University is a significant one, and I think it will uh, draw some attention most of the day. There's a $15 million lawsuit that was filed yesterday afternoon. We found out about it yesterday afternoon, alleging this isn't just about the last few weeks on campus. There have been decades, allegedly, of anti-Semitic incidents that the school and the York Federation of Students haven't addressed. Diamond and Diamond is filing the lawsuit. Daryl Singer joins us right now, a lawyer with that well-known Toronto firm. Daryl, thanks for getting up early for our show. I appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Greg. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I mentioned that this is not just about the last five, six weeks. Can you expand on that? You're hearing stories and anecdotes um, from as far back as 1998? Yesterday alone, we had more than 100 calls and emails come in. This has been going on for the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, and we're going back even beyond 1998. The lawsuit is framed only back to 98, but I'm hearing stories going back beyond that. But this is a well an issue. Uh, this is not the first time there's been media coverage about uh, uh, anti-Semitism at York and particularly arising from the York Federation of Students, but it's gotten particularly egregious, uh, obviously, in the last couple of weeks. If, uh, without revealing too much, what are some of these stories like? Like, what was happening on this campus 25 years ago? Well, there's, there's stories of, of, you know, Jewish students uh, being threatened. There's a couple of stories going back a number of years of Jewish students being physically assaulted, Jewish students uh, having meetings where they've had to barricade themselves in office. 
rooms because it was unsafe for them to go out. We're hearing recently uh, uh, the same sort of things. Uh, Jewish students are being told to leave. We're hearing this at other universities as well, where the conversation comes up in classrooms and Jewish students are being shouted down from pre- prevent, uh, providing their opinion. They're being told to leave the class. The professors are standing idly by while the other students shout the Jewish students out of the classroom. We're hearing about Jewish students afraid, uh, uh, more religious Jewish students who would normally wear uh, uh, a kippah on their head, being, you know, telling us that when they get to campus and park their car, now they take their kippah off and put it in their pocket. Students who might otherwise wear a, a piece of jewelry with a, a religious symbol like a Star of David on it, now afraid to do so. But yeah. almost the kind of things we're hearing, it's very similar and very reminiscent to what we were hearing was going on on the streets of Paris and other cities in France a number of years ago, where Jews are basically being uh, harassed verbally and physically simply for being Jewish and are afraid to identify themselves as such. We're talking about a a lawsuit being filed by uh, Diamond & Diamond uh, in conjunction with uh, numerous current students, recent alumni, people that went to the school as far away as 25 years ago. Daryl Singer's with us from Diamond & Diamond. What's the timeline for, um, for either a response from the university and the students' union? And I want to get to them in a sec. What's the timeline for what you're expecting to hear? from them as to whether they challenge, whether they want to settle, what comes next? I I have no doubt that they're going to challenge it. And I think unfortunate, the unfortunate reality of class actions litigation in Ontario is these things take a long time. The university was served several days ago, as was the student federation. I haven't had a response from them yet. I expect I'll get one in the next week or two. What is the student union's responsibility here? They obviously came up, came out with a very, uh, jarring. I thought it was jarring. A jarring, controversial statement, which wasn't exactly. Uh, hey, we understand this conflict. They they were on a distinct one side just two days after the massacre. What's their responsibility and culpability here in these last couple of weeks? Well, I think their responsibility uh, uh, is the same as the university's responsibility, which is to ensure the safety, respect, integrity, and voice of all of the students, not just some of the students, and particularly not to the exclusion. And Greg, I want to make it clear. There's, there's two things I want to make clear, because all the, the media coverage seems to focus on, you know, sort of the $15 million, because civil litigation in Ontario requires you to put a dollar amount into something. But the reality is that this lawsuit is really more focused on getting change. And there's things we're asking for in the lawsuit for both the university and the federation to do that would actually affect change to make it safer uh, for Jewish students uh, at the university. And the other thing I want to point out is we're not suggesting in any way that any student uh, shouldn't be uh, taking a position that's supportive, uh, you you know, uh, of, of the Palestinians. What we're simply saying is there's a difference between a peaceful protest saying we, you know, we support the children of Gaza, we feel bad for the children of Gaza, versus what we're seeing on campus, which is people cheering mm-hmm. about the Hamas terrorist attacks, people calling for the destruction of an entire state. And that's what we're saying is wrong. I think there's two examples that I'd point out recently. One, one is when I went to school in the early 90s, uh, a lot of people, men and women, said there isn't enough safeguards and bumpers on, on campus to provide safety for women. So what are you doing on the campus? There's an inherent responsibility to make sure people aren't just feeling safe but being safe. 
And I'd make the case, Daryl, as well, post 9-11. I watched this at at U.S. campuses because I was living there at the time. People of, of, uh, of, of Muslim origin felt the same way Jewish students feel right now. They felt there was a target on their back and they pleaded with the university, get us through this difficult time. And some schools responded better than others. Yeah, and, 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 and look, York has done over the years uh, a pretty decent job of putting safeguards into place to ensure the safety and the feelings of every other group except Jews, right? And, and, and they've gone out of their way to make sure that there's no, or certainly they've tried to make sure that there's a, a, what they call a yeah. safe space for, for students of all genders, sexualities, religions, creeds, colors, uh, except Jews. And, and that's the thing that comes through in these stories is that everybody on that university seems to be afforded protection for their views or their beliefs or their uh, religion, except for the Jewish student. It, uh, lastly, are people able to contact your firm and say, I have a story. I, I, I'm interested in finding out more about this, given it's a class action suit. Yeah, and, and the websites will be posted free. Uh, sorry, updates will be posted frequently on our website. We mm-hmm. suggest people just go to the website, diamondlaw.ca. There's a home page for this class action, and there's a place for them to provide their email yeah. address and their name, and we'll be in touch with them. Daryl, uh, thanks so much for the time. Let's stay on this. Uh, I know it's important to a lot of people uh, to get clarity. And, and also, you know, I think there's people that feel that they were unjustly treated and had to live unjust circumstances. And that's why you're involved. Thanks so much for the time today. I am. Thanks, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Peter, thank you very much for making the time for us today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, I want to get to everything that's transpiring in the Middle East, certainly, but that's a remarkable clip uh, and a very tense scenario at the United Nations um, yesterday as well. That's not potentially going to impact what we see on the ground in the Middle East, but that was Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen letting um, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres have it, in essence, um, over his criticism of Israel's Gaza campaign. Do tensions like that um, and, and important conversations like that influence policy? Does it take days and weeks for that to happen? Um, it influences policy over the long run. Israel has a long history of stopping its uh, ground offensives uh, once world opinion turns against it and it's achieved its goals. But the key is achieved its goals. And in this case, its goal is the destruction of Hamas. And that will take months, not weeks. When we see what's transpiring right now, the delay in a ground war, many people are speculating, and and it's educated speculation, that the United States is urging Israel, wait this out. Let's get as many civilians clear as possible. Does that theory make sense to you? Uh, Not really. I think that's happening. But I think what uh, the delay is, is Israel is shaping the battle space, as it's called in military terminology. Uh, they're launching an air offensive ahead of the ground offensive. Think back to the 1991 Gulf War when we had six weeks of airstrikes before the ground offensive went into Kuwait. Yeah, I think about that. That was the. Uh, I, I think back about that. The uh, the older George Herbert Walker Bush um, really gave every sense of an indication that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And obviously Saddam Hussein wasn't wasn't reacting, and he wasn't budging. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I don't think, you know, the the Israelis are on the the horns of a dilemma here. They have to, in their view, take revenge for the the deaths of their citizens, the greatest loss of 
Jewish lives since the Holocaust. And on the other hand, when they go in, they're going to get world opinion turned against it. Right now, um, you can see that shift already happening. We've got Peter Mansur joining us, uh, a retired U.S. Army officer and a military historian as well. Many people, it's a struggle, right? It, we saw this last week with what transpired with the hospital and fingers pointing, um, di- difficult to, to get a real sense of the numbers. There's many people documenting that the numbers coming from Gaza are really, really uh, difficult to trust. And it's very dangerous for news networks, especially the national ones, to use death totals, totals from Hamas. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, the numbers are squishy at best. I think we can trust the numbers of Israeli deaths in the initial uh, Hamas attack, Uh, but we have no independent verification of the numbers coming out of Gaza. And so, and of course, Hamas wants the numbers to be as high as possible. And so it's really very, very difficult to to get a real sense of what's going on there and how many people are being killed uh, who are non-combatants versus how many combatants are being killed. If I laid it out and said, just on the surface, and and I didn't know your tremendous experience and acumen, and I said, why haven't more people left Gaza? What's your theory on why that would be the case? Well, there's a couple of uh, things playing out here. One, Hamas doesn't want them to leave. They want a lot of non-combatant losses in the upcoming offensive so that a world opinion does turn towards its side, although I see that, that pretty hard that's pretty hard to happen, given what they did in Israel. And the other thing is the people have nowhere to go. Uh, Egypt won't let them in. They don't want a permanent uh, refugee population on their soil. Uh, South mm-hmm. Gaza is already at capacity. So um, the Palestinian people uh, are really in, in a bad, bad way here. Last thing for you. We watched President Biden last week, State of the Union address, um, and he had certain words for Israel. And listen, A lot of um, people have had stern words for Israel at different times over the last 75 years for going too far, for being too aggressive, for for being brutal when they felt like they needed to be. It's not an easy thing to um, to explain or justify sometimes. But Biden gave Israel a bit of a warning to say, don't do some of the things the U.S. did after 9-11. What's the motivation for the president to do that? (laughs) Well, of course, President Biden uh, took the brunt of public criticism for the withdrawal from Ga- Afghanistan. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was the result of uh, poor decision-making going into Afghanistan in 2001. So this is what uh, Biden is telling the Israelis. Think about the end game. Think about the long-term political settlement. Even if you win uh, a military victory, it's not going to do you any good unless you win a political victory as well. Yeah, those have to, those things have to be factored in. They just do. Peter Mansour, thank you so much for your expertise. I really enjoyed having you on here in Toronto this morning. My pleasure. Thank you.